you're listening to Queering Daisy. This is your host, Priya. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Mohammed Amin, who, besides being a fantastic activist and human being, has founded the Caribbean Equality Project and is doing important work of building community and support for Caribbean LGBTQ people. We touched on a lot of topics from how Mohammed built this organization and the issues that both of our communities overlap with and face. There's a lot of power in the way that Muhammad speaks, and my hope is that with this episode, you'll really hear some of the ways that he has been able to uplift his communities. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Queering Daisy, Muhammad. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Priya, for having me. This is amazing. I'm so excited to talk to you, uh, particularly because having met you many years ago and seeing your growth in the activist community has been really exciting for me just as a friend. But I'm also excited to bring our communities closer. There's so much that you are doing with Caribbean Equality Project that has so much resonance in the South Asian community. And just kind of bridging that gap is so much of the work that people like you and I do. So it's exciting to talk to you about Caribbean Equality Project and, and your journey as well. Thank you. You know, it has been a very rewarding, I would say, journey so far, mm-hmm. um, but it has also been very emotional. And I say emotional because as a brown, queer immigrant living in New York City, it's very difficult to sort of navigate our immigrant communities and being authentic to who you are. Uh, mm-hmm. There are moments when you want to be yourself and be true to who you are, but our societal norms confines us into these boxes that we're not able to always be our authentic selves. And through the work that I've been doing with the Caribbean Equality Project, I've been able to sort of liberate some of my anxieties in being in social spaces, and especially faith-based spaces, and especially in sort of political environments that I'm not hugely accustomed to, Mm -hmm. but also like reach a community that's been so underserved. The Caribbean LGBTQ community in New York City has been underserved for many, many years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're in the past, we've had a thriving social outlet for us to come together on bond, but we haven't had a supportive and educational and community building outlet. And that's what the Caribbean Equality Project brings to our Caribbean LGBTQ voices in New York City. So, you know, thank you for having me and thank you for creating this platform for us to talk about these complexities within our LGBTQ identities. Yes. Well, thank you. And all the appreciation back at you. You touched upon some some really great things in your opening, I think. A lot of that seems to be what unites the work that we do and, and kind of what our communities struggle with, I would say, in terms of balancing all those identities and finding a way to navigate our multiple layers of identities in certain spaces. Is that what drove you to found Caribbean Equality Project? What, what was that journey like and where did it kind of originate from? So actually, in 2013, prior to the Caribbean Equality Project, I was a part of the organizing team for Chutney Pride, and I had to take a break for self-care. But in 2013, after that break, my brother actually became a victim of a hate crime in New York City, specifically Southeast Queens. And, you know, I was in the process of transitioning out of Chutney Pride, but also with the support of everyone from the community organizations that I've met along the way, we were able to do a rally to talk about what hate crimes look like in our immigrant community, especially in Southeast Queens that has a large Guyanese, Trinidadian, Jamaican population. From that experience, I realized 
there were no outlets for queer Caribbean folks to go to to address trauma, uh, to address anti-LGBTQ hate violence, to address discrimination, to heal, to build community. And it took us over a year and a half, my family and I, it took us over a year and a half to really heal and collect ourselves and sort of, you know, reclaim our power to be who we are fearlessly in our community, you know, without worrying about being attacked again. And since there were no spaces, I reached out to the New York City Anti-Violence Project and I met amazing organizers and I and they referred us to counselors and they and, you know, just to sort of help us with the media and how to sort of help us tell our stories. And in the same time, just how to self-care. And these are all tools and these are all resources that I never had available to me until that experience. Mm -hmm. It was unfortunate that it took a negative experience for me to to learn about these resources. But in a sense, that's why AVP exists. Right. And through their um, through their workshops and through their trainings and just being a part of AVP and also go, they're referring me to organizations like the Audrey Law Project and learning about, you know, what organizing is all about and what, you know, transformation, you know, taking our taking our trauma, taking the violence that's inflicted upon our bodies and our identities and transforming that into being an advocate and mobilizing our community. I realized that I needed to do more than just being an advocate and being an activist. I needed to collect myself and I started having like small meetings with different pockets of the Caribbean community and starting to like figure out, well, what exactly we need as a, as a, as a community? What is the next step? How do we move forward from socializing, but also healing and supporting each other? And how do we address violence? And how do we address discrimination in the workplace? And how do we address discrimination in our faith-based institutions where we want to pray and we want to love ourselves? We want to, you know, practice our religious freedom equally with our community members, but also do that with our partners without being discriminated. And all of that led to uh, me founding the Caribbean Equality Project. You know, as I departed from Chutney Pride, several members also left with me at the same time. Mm-hmm. And those members also became some of the founding members of the Caribbean Equality Project. Um, for example, like Krishna Ramsaran, who is an HIV activist in the community. And he also had shared his battles um, and struggles with coming out, being po- coming one coming out being queer, but also coming out being queer and positive in a Caribbean community, um, mm-hmm. in a Caribbean household. And uh, we also reached out to Andy Bishoon, who has been in the community from, for years before I even was out. Andy used to do drag in the community, he used to perform. So when I reached out to him to, and, you know, to have a conversation about what the Caribbean Equality Project is and what the mission of this organization is going to be and how we could, you know, collectively, you know, revolutionize the way our communities see themselves and how we could empower and inspire like those in the shadows to come out and be visible to help us build this liberation movement. All of that led to me founding the Caribbean Equality Project. It led to, you know, us starting to create programs and starting to, you know, reach out to more of our communities to collect stories. And we realized that so many of our community members are so invisible. Mm. That's what strikes me a little bit about what you're saying is that there's a lot of just visibility that's happening, but really you're lending a stage 
not only to the Caribbean community that is invisibilized, but you yourselves are on a stage that is visible and you represent something greater than yourselves. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, we wanted to make sure that the Caribbean Equality Project, as we advocate for equality as an organization, our voices also needed to be diverse and inclusive and an equal representation of who we are in the Caribbean. It's also why we focus on the Indo-Caribbean identity and the Afro-Caribbean identity. And for most of us, when it comes to our skin color, some of us have been discriminated, but collectively, we've all faced discrimination based on our queerness, whether we're lesbians and bisexual, transgender, or gender non-conforming, or we're in between questioning and figuring out who we are. Uh, and, and, you know, the leadership team of the Caribbean Equality Project represents that diversity that we serve. And, you know, I always say that coming out, not just in terms of being visible, but also you have to first come out to yourself before you can come out to anyone else. And, you know, that process can take many forms. It can take many different forms. And if you as a person is not, if you're not strong in who you are, it's very difficult to like come out to your family members and be able to face rejection and have to pick yourself up and walk out from you, you know, walk out from a home that you've known all your life and being abandoned by your family. And that type of emotional trauma, that type of violence, that type of distress could really lead you down a path of homelessness, could lead you down a path to substance abuse, could leave you and, you know, potentially being suicidal. And we've seen a lot of that within Caribbean communities as, as well. So, you know, my team and I, a lot of the work that we do, it's about creating safe spaces for us to really celebrate our identities, but also talk about our struggles and creating a safe space for that type of shared struggles, because it's what we're all sharing. And it doesn't really necessarily depend on our skin color. And sometimes we talk about our brownness and sometimes we talk about our blackness. And sometimes we talk about the anti-black and anti-brown narratives that's in our communities because it still exists, right? And, you know, as an organization, in addition to us advocating for our inclusion, advocating for our, you know, our seat at the table to have our voices heard, but also really fighting. There's also a lot of racial justice work that we're doing there's a lot of um, immigrant rights that we're doing. And all of these intersectionalities also includes LGBTQ people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you touched upon several things that I want to come back to. One of them is with Caribbean Equality Project, you mentioned getting a seat at the table for so many diverse identities. That is something that I think I've struggled with as an activist, is how do you step back and kind of create and hold space for the voices that are not even at the table or for the voices that are not in the room? With the Caribbean being as diverse as it is, how do you approach both the community work that you do, but also hold yourself as an organization accountable to say, hey, we need to be uplifting the voices of the people who have long been invisible, who didn't even have Caribbean Equality Project before, who didn't, you know, have X, Y, and Z? Great question. A lot of the work that we do, when we talk about, you know, anti-Blackness, we also have a queer Afro-Caribbean person talking about that work. When we also talk about transgender identity, when we talk about trans issues, we have a trans board member, an Afro-Caribbean, um, Trinidadian trans board member that's doing that work. 
we also have volunteers that also represents the values of the Caribbean Equality Project. So a lot of the diverse work that we're doing and diversity within the Caribbean Equality Project, when we go out and we talk about this, we literally showcase who we are and what and the makeup, you know, the structure of the organization and the bodies that are and the identities that are doing this work and what we're advocating for and what we're fighting against. Our board represents all of those struggles. And right now, you know, we want to make sure that we're creating opportunities for those in the shadows to come forward and say, you know what, I've been in the shadows for so long. And for the first time, here's an opportunity, here's an outlet for me to be visible or for me to be heard and for me to be seen. And that's what the Caribbean Equality Project creates for our community. And it starts with our participation in the annual Pagma Parade. You know, for often, as an activist, I've petitioned the Pagua Parade organizers um, in Richmond Hill for four consecutive years, and I was denied um, to participate. And, you know, when my team and I founded the Caribbean Equality Project in 2015, after they started seeing the traction that the organization was getting and the work that we were doing in 2016, when we reached out to them again, that's when they granted, like, official, like, the organized I had I had several meetings and Priya, I can't tell you, like the meetings were so like dehumanizing to sit with an organizer and have to explain what exactly are we going to do in this parade and what are we going to be wearing and how are we going to carry ourselves in this parade? And to have like an organizer say to you, well, are you going to be holding hands and are you going to be kissing? And I'm like, is this what our, is this what society view queer people like queer Caribbean people that's what we do we love our partners right well Mohammed, how do you how do you how did you in that moment kind of respond to that but how do you then as an organization like fight that stigma right that's true across the south asian diaspora across indo-caribbean caribbean communities like to be able to talk to that to that person in that moment to try to change minds when you're facing microaggressions when you're facing this kind of discrimination how do you change minds as an activist, how, how do you do it? And, and what are we supposed to do to kind of break that stigma as a greater thing in our communities? Well, first, you absolutely respond. As an organizer, as an organization, as an activist, you have to respond. It is our job to make sure that these narratives are not only eradicated from society, but also eradicate from these folks, like their, their mindsets, right? We have to make sure that, one, we let them know there's absolutely nothing wrong in walking in a parade and holding your partner's hand. If you are sharing a moment of pride and joy in celebrating your religion and you want to kiss each other, what's wrong with that? When we talk about equality, when we talk about inclusion, we also have to understand the narrative of queer people loving themselves and loving their partners publicly and visibly without there being any negative attachment to it. And I had to explain that to him. And aside from all of that, he became an advocate for us. Mm. And that was amazing. Like to see him go back to his teammates and the committee, which according to my knowledge, is all made up of primarily men, mm. um, older men who are who have like a religious background. They're either pundits and they're priests and, you know, they're faith leaders. Right. And at the end of all of it, I think we had several in-person meetings, including phone calls as well. And through that whole traumatic process, 
they said, okay, we, we've discussed it and we've granted your approval to participate in the Pagwa Parade. I also said to him, we are not being inclusive. We want everyone to come and celebrate their, their faith. But also when they really want to celebrate their faith and they really want to, you know, just raise their rainbow flag and be true to who they who they are and bring their partners and celebrate that love and celebrate their religion with their partners. That's when we have a problem with that type of visibility, because it challenges our it challenges our homophobia and it challenges us to acknowledge that our community is still very homophobic. But we we marched the NYPD. I had meetings with the NYPD. They came. And they marched with us. We were really well received. Mm. And the organizers, like the next like, days later, the organizers actually reached out to me and said, you know, thank you for marching with us. Uh, we, we got really great feedback. Um, we also received feedback from some of the other Mondays that really questioned why there was a gay group in the parade. But we had to like stand firm on our belief that you folks also deserve to march with us and be open and be, be visible along with everyone else. And I thought that was really amazing to have wow, one yeah. of the committee members defend us. That sounds amazing. I mean, I I love the way that you're able to, as even as you talk about it, but I've always felt this energy from you, you're able to articulate kind of the intricacies of navigating so many of these identities and so much of the, the, the stigma and the hardship around it with the very like, optimistic, like, here's what we can do and an actionable way kind of. And I think part part of the power of what you do, Mohammed, I think is just the sheer power of like you being out there and like in the community and doing the work like hands on. And I, I know that that's hard as an activist. There's there's more questions I have for you. But since I'm on this tangent as an activist, how do you sustain yourself? How do you sustain your organization? You know, you talked about you know, Chutney Pride. And I think with, with Salga and other organizations I've been a part of, not only have there sometimes been differences, but there's also been a lot of burnout, you know, like when you're doing this work, when you're talking about issues that are really difficult, when you're working with community members that are facing discrimination and hardship and trauma and, and need to heal, how do you take space for yourself as an activist and, and for your organization? Wow, what a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, very simple, you know. <laughs> what a loaded question. Um, you know, I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because as an organizer, oftentimes we are more reactive and our self-care gets put on the back burner. And for me, my family has always been my support system and I rely on them heavily. I rely on them if I can make an event or I need a volunteer to go and support or just to represent CEP, you know, my siblings volunteers with the Caribbean Equality Project and they will go and represent or one of my CEP members will go and represent. But in terms of like sustainability, a lot of our work right now is funded primarily by community. Mm. We do fundraisers. uh, We've used outlets such as Facebook, and you caring and, you know, working with our community partners to also tap into their resources to help fund our work. Mm-hmm. And we've seen, you know, that's how we're able to, like, continue growing CEP in 2000. Well, last year, 2017, July to be exact, we be- officially became a 501c3 organization. Oh, so wow. prior Congrats. to yeah, <laughs> thank you. So prior to that, we were not eligible for any type of like funding. We were not eligible for any type of city council funding, um, or just like grants. We weren't eligible for any type of like uh, from from different foundations, right? And the the first grant 
we ever received was from um, Citizens Committee of New York. And it was for $3,000, and that was in 2016. And the, we, that grant helped us to start our Unchained program. Mm. And Unchained is the only culture-specific Caribbean LGBTQ support group in New York City. Wow. And, you know, when I, I oftentimes when I say that, I, I reflect on how limited that is, right? And I, because I wish, I wish there were 10 support groups in New York City that addresses the needs of Caribbean LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, there's only one, and it's at the Caribbean Quality Project. And that $3,000 that we received, we took that money, we did research, we did focus group to figure out, well, how do we frame this group and how, what are the issues that we're going to be addressing? Um, and we worked with facilitators that came on and volunteered their services. We worked, you know, we, we took that money and we focused on food. We wanted to make sure that folks were going to be coming because we needed, we also needed a space. And we also partnered with the Queens Library in Richmond Hill. And that's where we meet. And we've been meeting there for the past two and a half years. And through this entire process of creating that program, we've marketed, we've done research, we've reached out to community members. Are you interested in coming? You know, folks who have reached out to us for support. I mean, you know, we said to them, is this something you want to do? Is this something you want the Caribbean Equality Project to do? And are you going to attend? We want to make sure that this is a program that the community needs mm. and that they were going to support it. Because it didn't make sense for us to create programming and then no one shows up. Right. Right. So and we said, OK, based on our research, this is what this is what community wants. Now, now let's create it. And we did. We created Unchained and we called it. We, na- we, we literally named it Unchained because we wanted our community to be unchained from their colonial chains. I love that. I love that a lot. And, and for us, as for, for even for me as an organizer, when I came out, when I was 18, 19, trying to figure out my emotions, I wished, oh my God, Priya, I wished I had a space for me to go to and be among community members who were going through the same thing and trying to figure out my identity and trying to figure, help me to come out and help me to be strong and empower and build me up to, be, you know, to get to this place in life where I can say I'm gay without being scared or without having my heart racing, you know, I wish I had a group when I was growing up, but unfortunately it didn't exist. But for this generation in New York City, Unchained now exists. And our first meeting, we had three people that showed up and I couldn't have been more happy Mm -hmm. because I said, you three know that this space exists because you need it. Right. Yeah. And two and a half years later, for our March group meeting. It was uh, in commemoration of Women's History Month. We uplifted trans women, bi women, queer women, and lesbian women. And we talked about all these women in our history who have created change, who have just changed the history of the US. But we also uplifted like Caribbean women. We've uplifted folks like Dominique Jackson, who is a trans woman from Trinidad and Tobago. You know, she has been so visible in in the community and she has also been a part of CEP's work. And we, you know, we we talked about women like her whose stories continues to change the landscape of New York City. Right? Yeah. And we wanted we wanted our community members to know that 
you know, there are these women out here in our community that have been doing work even before we heard of them. So we wanted to give them that respect. We wanted to honor them. We wanted to uplift their stories. And for that group session, we had 25 people. Wow. 25 people showed up to that group session. And yesterday we actually had, um, or yesterday was our April session. And for yesterday's session, we talked about um, queer interaction with police and police accountability. And we Mm. partnered with um, CCRB and they came on and they did a presentation. And we also had the uh, the NYPD LGBTQ task force in the room as well to, to talk about what does being queer and POC looks like when you engage with police. Um, and we had 21 people that showed up yesterday. So, you know, the, the support group itself continues to grow. And that's, I can, like, I get emotional when I talk about Unchained because it's such a beautiful space to be in. Right. And to see the diversity, not only is it diverse, it's also intergenerational. Mm. And to see, like, young people being in the same room with someone twice their age and being able to give them so much respect and be able to learn from them right. and be able to acknowledge without judgment. That's amazing. Like it's, it's, it's incredible to be in that space, to feel that love, but also share the struggles that we all are collectively going through. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that sounds powerful. And I think that is something that, like you said, was would have been so nice to have had, you know, in our time when we were growing up. And just the fact that you've paid that forward and started to create that space for the next generation is huge. But I do also want to go back to like your journey for you. Um, That is something you wish you had is as you look back now on your coming out journey, being where you're at, St. Caribbean Equality Project reaching where it is what do, what do you reflect on about your coming out journey and you also mentioned I'll I'll tie this in as well family acceptance because you mentioned how much your family is a support group for you so how how do you reflect on your coming out journey and also how do you tie in that family acceptance and the importance of that in Indo-Caribbean and Caribbean communities I'll say this in coming out I wish I had liberated myself earlier Mm. Because after coming out, you know, sometimes people talk about there's this weight that's off your shoulder and there's this sense of freedom. And you know what? It's true. Like being able to say the words that I am gay to your family is scary. It is liberating. It is emotional. It's traumatic. But in all of that, there's so much healing And there's so much vulnerability in all of that. But also it's an educational moment for you and your family. And in my coming out, I realized I moved out of my parents' house when I was 22. I did not want to come out to them. I wanted my own space. I wanted to date. I wanted to be gay and be me. And without the fear of my parents finding out. And... The only way I thought I could do that was to be on my own. And it was also my way of protecting myself. And oftentimes folks in our community don't have that privilege. And I acknowledge that privilege of me being able to live on my own and figuring out who I am before I am able to come out to my family. But that, that was my journey. And I wanted to come out to my family before they find out from anyone else. And 
that conversation was, you know, very emotional, a lot of tears, a lot of fear also, you know, like reflecting back on it, like I was, there was a lot of fear in whether, you know, my dad, who is a very, he's, he's a provider, he's very, you know, he's always been very stern and very focused on education and wanting his children to have a better life. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's, like that's my dad. And my mom has always been more of, she have always been the parent that my siblings and I have gone to for emotional support. But I wanted to tell the two of them together. And my siblings, prior to me telling my my parents, my siblings knew for about a few years. So they were able to like hold me and be at home with me uh, when, I tell, when I told my parents. And for many, many years, we, we've started having Sunday dinners. And that, that's how I came out. I came out at one of those Sunday dinners. We were having tea, you know, like, you know, our colonial background, like we had tea. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I did. I came out. I told them it was my dad was really emotional. Aside from when my grandfather passed away, that was the second time I saw my dad cry. Wow. Like, I mean, tears, you know, confusion. Uh, and my dad was also very, like, vulnerable also because he said, like, he said to me back in Guyana, when I was younger, my friends and I used to beat up people that were gay. Mm. And I looked yeah. at my dad and I was like, oh, my God, like I, you know, this was my dad's truth. Like, you know, right. my dad as a person, you know, did this and he was so apologetic and he had so much remorse because he said he never he never thought that, you know, this is the struggle of gay people because he right. didn't know. And, you know, my dad said to me, he was like, you know, I don't understand all of this. But I want to. And, you know, he was still emotional. My mom was like, my, and I remember like my parents leaving and my mom gave me a hug and my dad didn't. He walked out the house. My mom gave me a hug and she said, I will talk to him. When my mom did that, I was just, I was so emotional. I was crying. I'm getting emotional even talking mm, about it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like that was everything for me. Like being able to feel my mom and feel that warmth and feel that love from her. It was a reassurance that I was going to be okay and that I, at least I had one parent that accepted me who was going to help with the other parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I needed to know that. But I also took the time to like explain to my parents that who I am had no reflection on their parenting skills. And I needed to reassure them of that because I didn't want them to question whether they made mistakes Right. And, you know, today it's been nine years um, since I came out to my family. And today I have an amazing relationship with my mom. She was at the launch of the Caribbean Equality Project when we launched in 2015 at the Queen's Museum. She was there. She witnessed, um, since then, my brother has also come out as gay, mm-hmm. uh, as a He's also a well-known dancer in the community. Um, he also does drag as Sundarita Indian Goddess. Mm. And my mom has gone to many of his drag shows. And I said to her, many of us don't have that. Like we have our family that accepts us, but they don't show up for us in the way that you do. Right. Yeah, and, even telling, and even telling her that like made me emotional because like I realized that, you know, not everyone has a mother or a father or a brother or a sister that will show up for them as soon as I call or as soon as I pick up right. the phone and say, hey, I need your help. 
So I always acknowledge my privilege and I always share that with my community. And I do it through social media. I do it through community organizing. I do it through different, uh, through the support group. I talk about my family, talk about my family support because I want to normalize family acceptance because there are parents and siblings who accept their queer child or queer siblings. Mm -hmm. And that that's what our community needs. Our community needs that type of visibility. I mean, you talk about coming out and I, I have an, a contentious relationship with with that phrase and with that term, just because I don't think it's just, you know, an act. We all I, I have a similar story where I sat with my family and I told them, but it's so much more than just the act of telling, you know, it's about finding the language and the words. And you don't talk about gender. You don't talk about sexuality in our South Asian and Caribbean communities. Like, mm -hmm. how do you even approach something like coming out and that coming out isn't just a one time thing. Right. So I have a complicated relationship with that narrative. But then also culturally, it's hard because coming out doesn't just mean you are coming out. Coming out means that your family is coming out. Coming out means that your lineage, your ancestry, your name, your religion, all these things that all the things that make you who you are, that are layers of your identity are then suddenly put on the spot and also visible. And I think that's what makes it hard for our culture and our cultures to mm -hmm. accept that and to accept coming out or visibility and what what is hardest to change about that? You know, like we we are doing work, we're out in the community, we're visible, we're trying to change these narratives. But I think the stigma that still remains and the stigma that is hardest to fight is just the realization of all of our identities, including our families, including their parents and their siblings and everyone else is like put on blast <laughs> because of yeah. of one identity, one aspect of one identity for us. And, and I think that's just hard. I mean, you talk about it and, it, and it, it's hard for me to hear because it's like, yeah, it's it's literally aunties and uncles and religious spaces and and family spaces. And, and if you're if you're someone like me, like I don't live in the same community as my parents anymore, then it's back home. Then it's people that knew you as a child. Then it's, you know, the diaspora home, uh, the, mm -hmm. the motherland. And so it just becomes this ever growing, you know, umbrella of everything that is put on blast and everything that is put on a platform of scrutiny and, and discrimination because of one aspect of one identity or, or multiple that, that coming out, I think never fully encompasses and never fully ends. And I think is something that just causes our communities and our cultures to struggle even more with it rather than maybe the mainstream white LGBT narratives would have it seem. Thank you for saying that because I also want to uplift that. And I, I, I'll share a really frustrating experience my mom went through. When I came out, both of my parents, right? And I, I told them who I was. And it took me years to get to that point. As a person, not even an activist, not even an organizer, just as a person, like it took me years to, one, learn the language. It took me years to build the strength and courage to do that. But also figuring out and knowing how to protect myself at the same time, right? Because I've... I read so many stories of folks being abandoned and being rejected and being homeless and being uh, and this is this is within the Caribbean community, you know, and I know that wasn't me. But I was like, I felt. In a sense, I was also like depressed, like thinking about coming out. 
And I was like, I need to figure out a way. How can I do this in a healthy way for myself, but also understand that my parents are going to be struggling. And as I am transitioning and being my authentic self, my parents are also going to have to transition in re-educating themselves about what queerness is and who we are and this new liberated son that they have and what that looks like for him. Going back to the, my story with my mom, my mom grew up with her aunts and her uncles. When she was younger, um, her parents had two children very close in age. Mm -hmm. So they gave my mom up to be raised by her aunts and, her, and her, uh, by her grandparents, right? Mm -hmm. And those grandparents, in a sense, became her siblings. And when they found out that I was gay, they called my mom to have dinner. That they said to her, come on, having dinner. And when she got there, she was ambushed. So my dad dropped her off and her aunts and her un and one uncle particular who is an imam, um, very homophobic. And they ambushed her and they said to her, you are condoning what your son is doing. And in Islam, this is against Islam and you're not going to go to Jannah and Allah does not accept this. And, you know, they used my mom's faith and her religious beliefs and who we are as Muslims against her. And she said to them, like my mom said to them, this is my son. This is my eldest son. And I'm not going to forsake him for any of you. And my mom picked up the phone. She called my dad and she said, pick me up. Mm. And she walked out of that meeting. And she didn't tell any of us. It was almost a year later when I went to a family function and my uncle came up to me. One of my uncle who lives in Florida, who's also religious, and it was a family wedding. So we went to the family wedding and my uncle, my other uncle, who's an imam, also said during the ceremony that marriage is between a man and a woman. And at that same family wedding, the next day, I went to like, you know, the sort of the family gathering, very informal celebrations, right? And another uncle came up to me and said, I want to talk to you. You know, I've seen some stuff on Facebook and I've heard some stuff. And I just want to let you know, you know, that, you know, I don't know what's been going on, but based on what I'm hearing, you know, this is, it's my duty as a Muslim to come and say to you that what you're doing is wrong. And if I didn't, I wouldn't be a good Muslim and I have to bring this to you. And I said to him, being a good Muslim means you love your brothers and sisters. You love your Muslim brothers and sisters. And you may be my blood. But what you're saying to me today doesn't make you a good Muslim. And I'm going to walk away from this conversation knowing that I will walk away from as a Muslim and I my beliefs and you will maintain your beliefs, which is rooted in hate. And I will no longer be able to have a conversation with you unless you could like respect me for who I am. And I walked away from him and I was so upset. Like I was so upset. I came home and the next day I called my mom and I told her what he did. And that's when, a year later, that's when my mom told me about that meeting. Wow. And I said to myself, I was like, man, for an entire year, my mom internalized that meeting. She didn't want to share it with any of us because she knew how, how hurt we were going to be. 
I also ask you, Mohammed, hearing that story is is so difficult and, and it's amazing that you were able to even hold yourself in that space and respond in that way. I don't know if I would have the strength to do that. But I wonder, you know, to bring it full circle with Caribbean Equality Project, how do you change minds? I mean, I think I asked this kind of earlier, but you come across, you know, religious connections, familial connections and, and things like this that create roadblocks on the way to understanding and healing and allyship. So what is it that we can do as members of the LGBT community to either inform folks and try to change minds or draw the line at like what's safe? Like what, where do you see this going? I guess is my question. And like, how do you, how do you try to break the barriers and when do you call it quits and say, Hey, you know what? This is not something I can change. This is not something I can fight. My work lies elsewhere. Like how do you make that call even? First, my work is grounded in uplifting, empowering, and educating queer Caribbean people. I must first make make sure that my community is being their authentic self and living their truth and being 100% confident in their queerness. Because without that type of strength, you can't change minds and you can't have a conversation with your family and your coming out looks different and everyone's coming out is different, right? But if we are able as organizers and as activists and as, you know, community members of our, of the LGBTQ community, if we're able to like hold our community together as they come out, as they talk to their families, then they know they have support. Personally, I feel as long as there's support out there, folks coming out will be less stressful. It'll be less traumatic because they know, you know, our family sometimes, they're not all, like we could be related by blood, but it doesn't mean that they're the ones that are going to hold us when we need to cry. And they're the ones that's going to hold us when we we have a breakup and our hearts are broken. You know, we're not going to sometimes we're not. It's going to take us years to get to a place where we can talk to our mom and our dad and our aunties and uncles and cousins about mm-hmm. a guy that's breaking your heart. And our chosen family and our friends and our community members are the ones that we go to and talk about that type of heartbreak. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it's relatable. That's how you build community and that's how you build support. And honestly, I approach it from a very simple perspective. Look at me as a person. What I do in my bedroom is none of your business. And as a person, I want the same respect and I deserve the same rights that you have. And then I break that down as an organizer. Mm -hmm. And in different spaces, I tailor that message very differently. Like sometimes our families don't acknowledge how toxic we are to each other. But as an organizer and as an activist and as a queer person, our experiences conditioned us to acknowledge toxic people. And we see them also within our families. And yes, you have to draw the line. Just just like how I drew the line with my uncle, folks have to walk away from situations. And when we walk away from these relationships, we don't walk away because we're heartbroken. No, we walk away to protect ourselves. I walked away to protect myself. And for us too, as, as queer people, when our community is coming out and our community needs support, we have to create spaces. You know, creating Unchained was 
in a sense, creating a space for queer Caribbean folks to just be themselves and to talk about what coming out looks like. And I, I remember when we first created Unchained, we had a mom that came by herself. I think it was for almost two sessions. She didn't say anything. She just sat there. So like, you know, within, I, I think it was the third session. She said to us, I think my son is gay. And I don't know how to talk to him. And I don't want him to be bullied. And, you know, I don't want him to experience violence. And I don't want him, you know, to have hardships. And she was so vulnerable. Like, she was so vulnerable in telling her truth. And not to tell too much of their story, but today, that mom and son are volunteers with the Caribbean Equality Project. And that's the work. Like, that's the work in our community. And it may take one family at a time to do it. But think about how we could revolutionize our South Asian, our Caribbean or Indo-Caribbean households or Afro-Caribbean households, how we in this post-colonial era, how we could change and reclaim our stories and reclaim how we live our lives and reclaim what family values are instead of uplifting the ones that were imposed on us. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's, that's the work that needs to be done. And the Caribbean Quality Project, our work is not perfect. And we're going to make mistakes along the way. But we're learning from it. And everything we do is grounded in, in building an uplifting community. And once we get to a place where we can say, this is what we've done, there's going to be a new generation that's going to be coming up that's going to need us. And say, you know, they're gonna, another organization is going to come to do something that we're not doing. And we're going to extend a hand to them. And we're going to say, hey, let's work together. Right. Let's support each other. What you're offering, we don't have the resource to do it. But let's promote what you do. Yeah. And, you know, we have to build solidarity in the work that we are all collectively doing. And this is why I love you for having a Indo-Caribbean Muslim gay man <laughs> on clearing Like, this is, this is the work. <laughs> this is exactly the work. I mean, that's so true. That is exactly true. I, I, and this is why I love what you do too. And this is, I think, why we've always gotten along for so well. I, I want to wrap up soon. I know we've gone a really over time, but I have another question I want to ask you, and it's probably not going to sure. be a brief question. You mentioned this earlier in one of your responses about racism within the Caribbean community, Indo-Caribbean, South Asian communities. A lot of it is layered in the same uh, foundations. What is the work that you think we can do as communities, as as LGBT folks, as South Asian, Indo-Caribbean folks as at a large, not just LGBTQ? Like, how can we start to address anti-Blackness and, and colorism and racism within these communities? What is the work that maybe you've seen at the forefront of Caribbean Equality Project? And what do you think we can do as communities to build allies within our identities and the communities that we're part of? Telling our stories. Mm. If we're going to talk about anti-Blackness, if we're going to talk about immigrant rights, if we're going to talk about racism, if we're going to talk about homophobia, transphobia, and discrimination, we have to talk about the intersectionalities of our identities. Mm. And we have to let community know that we do not condone and stand for any type of oppressive behaviors. 
And as part of as an organizer, I've seen this. When my Afro-Caribbean organizers go into an Indo-Caribbean space, they're not always that welcomed. And then they don't always get the same respect or the same acknowledgement that I get when I go into those spaces. So do you educate in that kind of situation? I mean, this is my question with a lot of a lot of these situations is, is do you educate I, then or, or how do you approach? OK, I, I do several things. One, we also within our support group, we talk about racism. We talk about, you know, we talk about phobias. We talk about LGBTQ phobias and then we also talk about phobias, right? The different forms of phobias and ism. And the Caribbean Equality Project work is more diverse than anyone has ever seen before. Mm-hmm. The bodies and the faces and the stories that we share represents our, our values, represents our principal values. And not everyone is going to agree with it. And that that's within the LGBT, that's within the Caribbean LGBTQ community and also the general population, right? Mm-hmm. And we do it through our My Truth, My Story. And My Truth, My Story is the Caribbean Equality Project uh, documentary that we do to showcase and pridefully tell Caribbean LGBTQ stories. And all of it is available on YouTube and so folks can check them out. Mm-hmm. And these stories represent the, the identities of those we serve, from Afro-Caribbeans to Indo-Caribbeans to trans identity to folks that are HIV positive to folks who have experienced as LGBTQ hate violence. You know, this this is telling our stories. We use this tool, this this project, as a tool to educate communities. I will also talk about, if they talk about coming out, I will also mention coming up and I'll flip that coming out story. How can we be more accepting of LGBTQ people and what does that look like? When it talks about anti-Blackness and colorism, this is such a rooted issue. It's ancestral trauma that we are still dealing with and we are still living with. And that baggage we are still carrying today living in the U.S., and living in the trauma. diaspora, yeah. and colonial trauma. Yeah. We're still carrying it, but it is still, it's up to us to show up differently. It is up to us to acknowledge that who we are, what our ancestors have gone through, and that type of trauma and family separation and violence that they experienced, we could learn from it, we could honor them, but we don't have to continue it. We don't have to perpetuate that cycle of hate that they've learned. And that's a struggle. Like, even as an organizer, I struggle with that because even some of the fellow people that I organize with, when I see through social media, my, so, my, my social media interaction, when I see them make certain comments or they have certain hashtags, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> I'm like, it's so difficult for me to love you and yeah. love you. And you are part of the problem. Your 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 very social media post is problematic. This is and why we stay away from social media. <laughs> you know, honestly, I embrace social media. I love it. I, love- <laughs> I tell you this much. You can learn a lot about a person through social media. You can learn a lot about their values. Because it's also it's also what people want you to know, right? Yeah. They share what they want you to know, but in very there are moments of vulnerability that folks share a part of who they are that makes you look at them differently. That's true. Yeah. And when you organize with them, you see it, right? Mm. When you are trying to create inclusive spaces for Black and Brown bodies to be together to share their culture and their history and stories. I've always said to my fellow organizers, my 
experiences with discrimination is not rooted in my Indo-Caribbean-ness, but it's rooted in my queerness. Mm. And as a queer person, I relate to other queer people with their experiences. And I don't look at their skin color, but I look at the trauma that they've faced and the violence that they've faced because of who they are, because of them living out loud and proud. Right. And, you know, and that's difficult because I'm going to, in saying that to people, I'm going to create maybe folks who might want to distance themselves from me because, well, I don't, my organizing is not rooted in my Indo-Caribbean, but I am Indo-Caribbean. Every single day I walk out of my house, my brownness walks with me. When folks look at me, they see, that's all they see first until they get to know who I am. Right. So my, my trauma and healing is not from being Indo-Caribbean. And just because I don't talk about it all the time, I am so proud of being who I am and, my, and being Indo-Caribbean. But I also want my community to acknowledge my queerness and be proud of that as well. And when we talk about when we talk about Indo-Caribbean and South Asian and we talk about Afro-Caribbean, our identity, there's so much history in our identities. And our ancestors have struggled immensely for us to be where we are today. Right. And I always want us to uplift them and I always want us to honor them. But we also when we talk about orientation and when we talk about queer people, we are still fighting for our rights. We are still fighting to be understood and i don't want to be tolerated i say to, i say to people all the time i am not here to talk about tolerance i'm not a disease that i'm <laughs> going to go away i don't need you to tolerate me i want you to understand who i am as a person and how that challenges your notion of what queer people is yeah absolutely I mean, God, I feel like I could hear you talk forever. Like everything you're saying, I'm like snaps. Like I'm like, yes, everything to everything you're saying. It's like, it's like, I feel that so much and I love it. And I honestly, I think that's a, that is a perfect note to end on. Cause I don't have any other questions. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to, to mention or touch upon? I just want to say how much I love you. I love you too. <laughs> and I am so proud of you. Oh, I'm you. so proud of you creating this platform for, our identities yes. to be uplifted and our experiences to be shared and our voices to be heard. And for that, thank you. No, oh, thank you. Thank you for being on. Can you just let our listeners know where they can uh, follow Caribbean Equality Project and how to get in touch with you if they'd like to? Of, of course. Uh, everyone could definitely connect to us. We're on Facebook at Caribbean Equality Project. You can find us on Instagram at Caribbean Equality Project. We're also on Twitter at Carib Equality. And you can also just go to our website, www.caribbeanequalityproject.org. Uh, everyone can also follow me on social media at mohammed.qamin. Um, that is my name. Um, I always use my middle initial. And you can find me on all social media platforms with that name as well. And for anyone that's interested in participating in any of our upcoming events, we're going to be marching in Queen's Pride on June 3rd. We're also going to be participating in the annual NYC Pride March um, on June 24th. And folks are welcome to go to our pages, sign up, email us at info at caribbeanequalityproject.org to learn more and also come out and march with us on April 14th in the annual Pagua Parade. It's the 30th annual Pagua Parade in Richmond Hill, Queens. 
come out and march does bring your rainbow flag we are definitely going to be the most colorful group marching <laughs> in the pub of this year yeah i believe that actually all, that's so true all, yeah in addition to our holy colors we're gonna have a rainbow color we're gonna be <laughs> pridefully waving that flag and marching that out in our indian wear in our in, in in holy colors so please come and march with us that's awesome. That's great. That sounds like so much fun. And I hope people do join you. And I look forward to seeing all the pictures of that because that looks so mad fun. Like I might, I might have to join one of these years. <laughs> yes. When you're available, like come yes. to Queens, like yes. come to Richmond Hill and be Definitely. a part of it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mohammed. I'll let you go. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. I can't, I can't thank you enough, honestly. Thank you, Priya. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Daisy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone every Wednesday. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or know someone who should be featured on Querying Daisy, please drop us an email. Thanks again for listening. 